Welcome, everybody, to a special edition, I'd say, of Crystal Kyle and Friends. Not only is it Crystal Kyle and Friends, it's also sort of like a dual thing going on. We got Brianna Joy Gray in the house, and this will be on her channel as well, the Bad little, Faith Podcast. Little crossover episode. Little crossover episode. Love that for us. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Looking forward to it. So uh, we're going to discuss Cornell West's campaign and everything around that. And uh, I just want everybody in the audience to know, because I don't know if we've said this publicly before, mm. that like he's been invited on multiple times and he just hasn't come on yet. And, you know, this goes all the way back to when he launched. Mm -hmm. yeah. We invited him on. He hasn't come on yet. You know, will he eventually? I don't know. You know, it's up to him. Ball's in his court. Uh, yeah, but and we had him on before. We had him on before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before he announced his campaign. I mean, we're going back to when the People's Party thing launched. Right. We, were, we invited him on all the way back then, too, and just haven't heard back or anything. But I just don't want people to think... We're debating Cornell West, but like Crystal and Kyle are refusing to talk to Cornell West. We'd love to talk to Cornell West. We want to have him, you know, we'd love to have him on at any point in time to discuss anything and everything. Um, so we're going to discuss his campaign a little bit here. And so I want to lay out what my position is. And then, Brie, I'll turn it over to you and you can respond to it. And, Crystal, sure. you can jump in at some point and tell, say what your position <laughs> we'll is. We'll go through all the things. <laughs> so we'll go through all the things. So uh, here's my First of all, in the pr Democratic primary, because I'm a registered Democrat in New York, I will be voting for Marianne Williamson. Very happy and proud to say that. I'm, one of the, I'm the chief Marianne Williamson bro out there. <laughs> I'm leading the charge. Um, now, in New York, I'm in a safe state. So would I vote for Cornell West in New York? Yes, because I have a 95% agreement with him on policy, and I think it would be nice to get the Green Party in a position where if they become more viable because we get ranked choice voting or something, it'd be nice to grow their popularity a little bit. And when we get ranked choice voting, I think they kind of automatically become a lot more viable. So I'd like to help out in that process. But we're, when, if I'm in a swing state and it's Biden versus Trump, I'm at the point now where I don't even think it's a tough call. I would definitely vote for Biden because... Either in that situation, even if other people are running, either the Democrat or the Republican is going to win. And in my estimation, Biden has definitely passed what I would describe as my bare minimum purity test. And I think if it's him or Trump or even him or DeSantis or anybody, he just blows them out of the water. And so I think I'd happily vote for Biden in that instance. Your response. So I similarly was voting for Jill Stein in New York in 2016. I did the same. Um and I also happen to believe that strategically it makes the most sense to apply pressure to the Democratic Party by voting for not Biden in a primary. Marianne Williamson is obviously the most progressive candidate in the primary. And then vote for Cornell West in the general. And I know there are a lot of people in my audience who are frustrated by that plan because they think that it takes something away from Cornell West's run or it affirms the Democratic Party in some way to vote for Marianne Williamson running as a Democrat. I don't feel that way. I feel it's a little hypocritical to have that position, given that we all just enthusiastically voted for Bernie twice in the primary the last two rounds. Um, you can make a distinction saying that Bernie was an independent and he always identified as an independent and Marianne Williamson doesn't have that kind of cloak of distance from the Democratic Party. You can say what you want. I don't I don't see those things as mutually exclusive in the least. So that is also my plan. I differ from you only insofar as that I would say it's, diff it's a more difficult choice in a swing state to decide mm -hmm. what you're going to do. But I frankly respect people who feel comfortable. It has not been something that I have to contend with, but I respect people who feel comfortable voting third party even in swing states. The reason is this, and it goes back to that early bad faith viral Noam Chomsky interview in which I asked him about a month before the 2020 race. Look, I said, I take your point. Let's say Trump is an existential threat. Let's say that he's a unique threat among all Republican candidates. My concern is that every year 
because we all vote for blue no matter who, because most Democrats vote blue no matter who, or most left-leaning people do, the message that gets sent out is that Democrats don't have a bar. You can go as low as you want, as close to the Democratic Party, as you uh, Republican Party as you want, and there's a ratchet to the, to the right effect. And Republicans know that they can keep being more and more extreme. And so I want you to explain to me what you predict to be the stopping point at which we're no longer be, we're no longer saying this new Republican is the worst that ever, has ever happened. This new Republican is the worst that has ever happened. Tell me you're not going to be saying the same thing about Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy or whatever other person comes down the pike. And he was unable, in my subjective view, to respond credibly to that claim. So if somebody could, could tell me strategically what the stopping point is going to be of making this argument of the lesser of two evils, I would be open to the idea that, okay, this is the last one. Donald Trump, fine. He, he tried to steal the election, fine. That's, that, is a, that is a new line that he has crossed. But absent an acknowledgement that we are creating our own destiny by lowering the bar in these ways, I'm not comfortable coming out and criticizing anybody who no longer wants to be complicit in that kind of a system that's enabled the Democratic Party to not have a primary, treat Marianne Williamson as bad as, badly as they've treated her, mm -hmm. treat Bernie Sanders as badly as they treated him, and openly come out and say, and say they don't have to hold a, a free, fair election. The DNC argued that in court. You know, so let me explain a little bit of my position. I think that'll help respond to some of what you said there. Um, and I'm also curious to dig in a little bit more to your analysis of how the Biden administration has actually been in reality. So last election in 2020, I did live in a swing state. I lived in Virginia, still live in Virginia, registered in Virginia. And it did not feel good to vote for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. But I decided to vote for Joe Biden, which is something I said publicly at the time. But I said something very similar to you, which is like, listen, this was not easy for me. If you, wherever you live, swing state, not swing state, et cetera, you do whatever you analyze is the right thing to do. And the reason that I voted for him primarily at that time, even though I thought he had an atrocious record in the Senate, even though, you know, complicit in the Iraq war, complicit in bad trade deals, complicit, you know, like terrible things on crime, all that stuff, right? The primary reason I voted for him was because of the National Labor Relations Board and because labor politics and building out union power in this country, to me, is one of the most important goals and something that I think we all share and leftists generally believe. Now, in retrospect, not only do I feel good about that vote, he's actually surprised me. Now, I've got all kinds of issues, right? On the National Labor Relations Board, though, specifically, they just issued a ruling which could be a complete game changer for unions. And just to explain to people a little bit, Basically, in the past, bosses could union bust with impunity, no accountability. Now, the process going forward is completely changed. If bosses are caught union busting, then that's it. There's no more election. It's canceled. Mm -hmm. They have to recognize the union and start bargaining with them. That's the biggest shift in labor relations we've had in our lifetime. So that's why at this point, I'm not only, you know, it's likely to, I'm a Marianne supporter as well, but we can all see the most likely outcome is it's going to be Trump versus Biden. Not only would I say that protecting the Biden National Labor Relations Board is important enough for me to vote for Joe Biden, but it is important enough that I would actively encourage, but I'm not going to shame them for whatever they decide to do, but I would actively encourage people who are in a swing state to vote for Joe Biden, if for no other reason than to protect that board. So I think that's a perfectly defensible position. And I had this conversation on my podcast in the last episode, and there were people who would characterize that position as, 
I mean, you've heard the thing. You've been on the internet. Uh, you know, being too credulous about Biden or, you know, being too comfortable in one's own position in life and not needing enough change and being happy with the status quo. People will say things like that. I think that, I think actually that if your priority, if you're, if you believe the path to meaningful change is going to primarily come through a kind of, I don't say this dismissively, but a kind of labor incrementalism, meaning there are meaningful labor gains that happen, but are not the type of which would radically transform the system the way that some people want to happen in a shorter term. And the way that some people might argue Bernie Sanders represented his movement as, as the goal of being, mm -hmm. then that's a defensible position. But I also, I have to hold space for the reality that there are people for whom, even as significant as those labor gains are, it's simply insufficient. And what they see when they look at the trajectory of the last 50, 60 years of Democratic Party politics, when they look, when they read Listen Liberal and, and see the longer game the Democratic Party making a concerted choice to back away from labor in a way that has gone on for decades and isn't necessarily turning around as a consequence of Joe Biden having some good NLRB appointments. And so, so let me actually, ahead, let respond, me actually, and then I want to jump into it. So, Number one, I don't think that in like massively increasing union density, I actually don't see that as incremental change. I mean, if you look at the chart of the decline in the middle class and the decline of union density, no, I, you'd be hard pressed to find I, I a more significant Crystal. factor. I, I, but I made these arguments as well. But the other piece is I feel like those same people who are right about the Democratic Party. They were right, you know, right about the analysis in Listen Liberal, right about the fact that you had, you know, this free trade bipartisan consensus and in large part a union busting bipartisan consensus also don't acknowledge that there actually has been a notable shift in the Biden administration. Now, my big issue with the Biden administration, I mean, there's a million of them, right? On foreign policy, I've got problems. But my biggest issue economically with the Biden administration is the way they've allowed the pandemic relief, the short-term pandemic mm -hmm. relief programs to fall away and leave a lot of ordinary Americans more in a more precarious financial position now than they were at the beginning mm -hmm. of the administration. And that's not nothing. But when I look at the long term, when I look at the fact that, listen, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, with the CHIPS Act, with infrastructure investment, you're talking about industrial policy in a way that would have been completely unheard of in the Clinton-Obama era. When you look at not just the NLRB, which I said is like the core for me, but also his antitrust appointments and the fact they're really trying to reverse decades of neoliberal attack on any sort of trust busting. I feel like none of those improvements that have made Biden on the, that front way better than Obama, way better than Clinton. I just feel like there's no willingness to acknowledge any of that whatsoever. I don't think the issue is acknowledging it. It's how much it matters to you, how weighty that is to you, and how much you see those kind of meaningful, fine, call them meaningful, improvements as really core to the, the nature of the project that you're on. And I think that what some people are frustrated by is that this went from feeling like in both left media and left politics, a bigger revolutionary project that was going to the core of our capitalist system and wanting to radically change the way that 
human lives are valued, what we consider to be the nature of our social safety net, what we believe to be the nature of what we consider to be human rights. And they wanted to join a movement that validated what many of us felt intrinsically, emotionally for most of our lives, that something in the milk very much wasn't clean. And Bernie came along and articulated that we were it was legitimate for us to be asking for something more. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, it does feel as though there has been a kind of a bait and switch. It's not that what you're describing isn't true or legitimate. And I said this on my my podcast. If your priorities are what you have kind of articulated your priorities as being, I think it's a perfectly legitimate argument. But I have to hold space for the fact that for many people, it simply is inadequate. Wait, let me, can I respond? Yeah, Let Let me jump in here. So my issue is that many people on the left are, I would say, dishonestly refusing to acknowledge any good things that were done. We could all on the left list, like, here's the 57 things we hate that Biden did. But when something good happens, I'm the only one talking about it. And then I get accused of being a DNC shill. Now, I'm not I'm not like, (laughs) look, I'm not blind. I think in order to be intellectually honest, you have to look at here's the good things that happened. Here's the bad thing that happened. I'm going to give them all to you. And then you could judge how much you value each and which one you weigh more and how that factors into your like voting analysis. But I was like the poster boy back in the day or people viewed me this way as like he's the purity tester. He's like the main purity tester guy. And I didn't vote for Biden in 2020 because I didn't think he would pass my purity test. Now, at the time, people could go back and watch the video. My purity test was super fucking lenient. It was like, if, if I'm convinced you're going to do like two or three of the things that I value highly, then I would vote for you. Because I know it's basically down to just the Democrat and the Republican, no matter how much we want to wish the Green Party or Libertarians want to wish the Libertarian Party into existence. And so when I look at the record, again, I can list all the bad things. But she just mentioned the NLRB raising overtime pay. Or you mentioned the thing where, you know, they automatically recognize the union if the bosses try to bust it up. There's also the overtime pay rule where now it's not $33,000. It's about $55,000 a year where now you get uh, overtime pay. That's a huge, huge change. Student loan debt reduction and even Biden even coming back after the Supreme Court tried to slap it down. And he said, no, I'm going to try to do it through the Higher Education Act now. There's little things we could go after. Oh, the interest rate. Yes, that's bad. I agree with you on that. But we got to recognize that That is, all things considered, a step in the right direction. Pulling out of Afghanistan, he actually had the balls to do it, even when the media was shitting on him relentlessly. And I didn't see anybody on the left coming into his defense at that point. I saw a lot of people of the left. I was like the only fucking one. It was like me and Matt Iglesias. I I definitely defended him. Okay, well, then it's like three people. I didn't, and all these, oh, I'm so anti war, anti war. He pulls out of Afghanistan and it gets gets messy because that's what happens when you pull out of wars. And all of a sudden, oh my God, you know, it's the end of the world. I thought that was a good moment for the left. I saw a lot of consensus. Good, good on you because we were we almost resented and kind of were enjoying the extent to which he was getting, you know, dogpiled by the mainstream media, and we were the only ones defending him. So I, I would quibble with that a little bit. I but didn't I think, see much defending him. I Kyle, really didn't. Kyle, what people are responding to, if I if I can offer this, is not the idea that you are accurately describing advancements, good things that Joe Biden is doing. I think you could also say Obama did some good things. No, you know? Biden is way better than Obama, and, not even that, close. That's not the point I'm making. Okay. It's not that one is better than the other. You could also sit here and say Obama did good things. Now, the way you bristled at me saying that, I could say, oh, why won't you just acknowledge that Obama did good things? The same way that you're saying that leftists won't acknowledge, they bristle when you acknowledge that Biden did good things. And it's because we have different standards and we're making different kinds of comparisons. But that's not my issue, because they're not even acknowledging the good things, but, is my point. But, I have a list of 47 things here, and I've heard nobody talk about any of them. But... but let me let me get to the core of this point. The reason that people are frustrated with that kind of analysis is because it's been used for so long by liberals to justify why people shouldn't be asking for more. I'm not saying that that's what you're doing. But if you bring up something like student debt, 
when the consensus of all of the student experts that I've talked to on my podcast, people from the Debt Collective, the Asher Taylors of the world, the legal experts I've brought on, is that there was a path toward doing this, to canceling all student debt that would not have been stymied by the Supreme Court. The same authority that Donald Trump used to enact the student debt moratorium, which has been ongoing until beginning of this month for the last three years, was the same uh, authority that he could have canceled all student debt with a stroke of a pen. He chose not to do that because he decided to means test the program. He circulated those documents. I got one in my inbox last August, I believe it was, to see if you qualify for student debt. It was a very easy form. But when he did that, that started the clock for people to be able to challenge it in court, which what six states did, two of them were successful, and now here we are today. Not only did he decline to do the unstoppable mechanism to actually cancel all student debt, he additionally chose to use a legal authority, which when many legal experts said was the most vulnerable one. So you're now saying, no, 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 well, no, he no. could have well, used the Higher Education Act. He did. He no, he did. He, he could have. He could have done that in the first instance. But he didn't. People, and now he tried it again through the Higher Education okay, Act. The but, idea that it's like it's a conspiracy. He doesn't want to actually cancel it. No, he he appealed the case like four or five times. Kyle, and then at the end of it, when the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. He said, fuck you, I can. And he did the Higher Education Act. That's Kyle, exactly what we wanted him to do. Then he does it. And people go, oh, that's not good enough. But, but, and it's like. But, Right, That's right ridiculous, there, Kyle. What we wanted him to do was first and foremost just cancel the student debt. No, no, no. Debt. I expected him to do nothing on student debt. This is the point I'm trying to get across to you: is that right. I expected hold, nothing from Biden, on, no, and he did way more than I expected. Let me, let me Let's make be a, honest it, about it's that. It's not about your expectations. We have different expectations. Of course, I'm going to talk let about me, it through my pivot, expectations. But, I'm me. <laughs> but let me. Kyle, I want to pivot this conversation have, a little bit because what we really have is a tactical disagreement. We could quibble about student loan debt. We could quibble about all kinds of aspects of the Biden administration. All of us would like him to do more. There's no doubt about that. Our political, but hold on. It's not our, a political, our political aims are ultimately very similar. But I do think the student loan debt uh, example is instructive because it shows what has been effective in terms of securing real gains versus what has been ineffective. Jill Stein running in 2016. I don't think she was a spoiler, but the Democratic Party thinks she was a spoiler. They put that out to the public. So in the theory of change where a third party would force all of this revolutionary change on the Democratic Party, that should have worked. But instead, it served to allow the Democratic Party to basically demonize and dismiss third party efforts. And then they prop up Joe Biden. So that definitely didn't work. However, the fact that Joe Biden had to be on a primary debate stage versus Bernie and Marianne and a whole lot of Elizabeth Warren, a whole lot of other people who were pushing him on student loan debt cancellation, forced him into a position of doing something when he 100 percent would have done nothing otherwise. And we can see that now because, you know, the fact that they've basically like blocked any sort of real democratic price process within the democratic primary has made it possible for him to literally promise nothing for this next term thus far. So you can see how the third party effort was not successful in bringing about whatever revolutionary change people want to see. And the process that Bernie engaged in and that Marianne Williamson is engaging in now was far more effective in actually delivering results. And that's what I'm focused on. So first of all, you, I think, are both fundamentally, dramatically overestimating and overstating and giving way too much credit in the second that you can make your labor point, the student debt point, 
absolutely not. Joe Biden promised and coerced people to the polls by saying he was going to cancel at least $10,000 of everybody's student loan debt and moreover cancel all student loan debt for graduates of HBCUs. And he went down to Georgia, a state that he not only needed to win for the presidency, but needed to win for the Senate, and where there are three of the major HBCUs in the United States of America, made that promise and people knocked doors and turned people out to the polls on the basis of that promise, which he immediately stopped talking about the second he got elected and reneged upon. He also knew he knew the authority that he had to cancel all student debt. And I know because all of these student debt advocates have been talking about how they were directly liaising with this office and communicating these points. And they chose to ignore them and do a plan that he knew could be abstract. You can say it's, it's not a conspiracy theory. That's conspiratorial thinking. But he, he, it's either a conspiracy or he's an idiot. Those are the options. And I'm not especially comfortable in validating either of those things. Now, you, you were saying that you were looking through the prism of your own Perspective no, I was saying I expected nothing from him, like we all expected nothing from him. Absolutely not. The people that he promised- I expected nothing from him. <laughs> I expected nothing of Joe Biden. He was the guy who brought us NAFTA. He's the guy who brought us the Iraq War. He's the guy who wrote the Patriot Act, who wrote the when Crime Bill. I expected nothing of him. When a presidential candidate makes a promise to people and lies to them in order to get them to go to the polls, I believe that it's my job as a member of independent media to make it clear so that people don't fall for those kinds of mistakes going forward. People, if, if Biden wants to run as I'm a milquetoast incrementalist who's just better than Trump, he can feel free to do that all day and night. And then he would have lived up to the expectations that he set for himself in the context he of a did primary run like campaign. That, he done, no, did run as a milquetoast. He promised to cancel all student debt for every graduate of an HBCU and $10,000 to $20,000 of, of student debt for people who earn less than $125,000 a year. Now, that might not matter to you. And I and I've defended, I defend... I defend you guys against claims that, you know, you don't care about this stuff because, you know, you're out of touch and it doesn't affect you in material. I think that some of those claims get really silly and overly personalized. But Biden made a choice to tell 44 million Americans who have student debt that he was not only going to not fulfill his promise to them, but that in the middle of the debt ceiling argument of a couple of months ago, the one thing that he was going to bargain away to get the debt ceiling passed was ending the student loan moratorium. So now it's not me. I'm not I'm not the one in control of whoever votes. He has to make the case to those 44 million Americans who's who's he's starting their student debt up. That's right? Months is before the plan stronger or weaker on, than on. what you expected? Because it's but, way stronger than what I expected. Hold on, hold way on. weaker than what I expected. But, but well, the, I expected nothing is, from a month student the, debt. The real, nothing. The real question, though, is we all want all of the debt to be canceled. Duh. Yeah, of course. What is going to most what is the most likely path to get us there? And it's I, not Joe Biden, hold obviously. On, hold on. But I don't see how Cornell West getting 5% of the vote and unintentionally helping to reelect Trump, that so, doesn't so get us there at let's all. Let's get into that. Let's so, get into that. So for whereas two things. if you have a primary contender actually able face-to-face -to, -face to pressure him, well, we have seen the way that that Crystal. can potentially work. So that's, those things but, aren't mutually exclusive. So why is that why, an argument against Cornell West? It doesn't have to be exclusive, but... Do you think that the project of defeating Trump is worthwhile at all? Because I would turn back on you. You asked the question, like, where's the bottom of the lesser evil yeah. question? Like, where where does that end? I would turn it back on you and say, where does it become not just a lesser evil, but like, actually, this person is significantly better. And I would say that Biden, for my disappointments with him, for all of the things that I talk about plenty, including disappointments on student loan debt, including on the pandemic relief that I talked about, including on the railways, all these things, right, Ukraine, 
At what point, though, do you acknowledge that this person is a lot better than Donald Trump? And so when you're in this binary choice where let's not pretend like Cornell West is going to be president of the United States, it is worth making the choice in that situation to reelect Joe Biden and get the NLRB and get the antitrust stuff and get what is at hand to be gotten in this moment and live to fight another day. So for one, Crystal, somebody might say, and people did make this exact argument against Bernie Sanders. Fine, he's on the stage, but I'm not going to vote for him. I'm not going to weaken the person who's ultimately, obviously going to be the president of the United States. I'm going to, why not vote for Biden in the primaries? Why? And it's, you're wrinkling your brow because it's a ridiculous argument. This, I, I completely agree. I don't see... The, the argument for Marianne and against Cornell West, they have nothing to do with each other. You can, you can vote for Marianne in a primary. You can be happy that she's on the debate stage, which obviously they aren't allowing, which is material to this argument, I've got to say. Some people are, you're saying, what is the Green Party going to do? The Democratic Party has demonstrated that it won't host a free and fair and open okay, primary. Wait, I get that. But how does Cornell West getting 5% of the vote and helping unintentionally to reelect Trump, so how things. does that move us towards our so goals? So two things. One, you said this in the now viral clip that just framing Cornell West as a spoiler, looking at those polls. In those polls that you referenced, Biden is losing in both of them, with or without Cornell West in the race. Now, well, Cornell West makes it worse. Cornell West and makes listen, incremental and worse. I, I just want to clarify one thing. I'm not blaming people or saying, like, it's their fault for Trump getting reelected or whatever. But I am saying we would like it if the way the Democratic Party responded to Cornell West would be to cancel all the student loans. But we know okay. that's not reality. And so let's get so we know that, that what ought to happen and the reality of what will happen are two very different things. Let's get to the second point. Yeah. You framed the 2016 votes for Jill Stein and the reaction of the Democratic Party subsequently as evidence that a concerted movement effort to withhold one's votes has been proven ineffective. It is obviously the case, Crystal, that there was not a concerted effort in 2016 or any kind of structural movement to withhold one's vote for Hillary Clinton in favor of Jill Stein. It was just a bunch of us angry Bernie bros, a very small number, by the way, because we all know sitting here that more Bernie Sanders voters in 2016 bent the knee and vote for, voted for Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton voters in 2008 bent the knee and voted for Barack Obama. We all know these statistics. We've been saying them back at neoliberals for the last five, six, whatever years. That being said, there was no argument to control the media narrative and present an opportunity for actual uh, uh, leverage and change. So there wasn't like a group, uh, there was no spokesperson, there was no politician, there was no left media that was saying, here, I have a organized movement, an organized group of people who are willing to actually change their mind and vote for the Democratic nominee in exchange for various concessions. That didn't exist. And I'm, by the way, not advocating for it. I know that some of my friends like Nathan Robinson have said that Cornell West should do exactly that, say that he'd be willing to drop out in exchange for various concessions. I think that's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. I think that's more than, frankly, I, I love Marianne and I hope she's successful, but that's more than Marianne is likely to get out of this. However, I, that is not even my plan, that, my perspective. Yeah. What I am saying, though, is that knowing th that the Democratic Party is fundamentally not willing to be fair. They're willing to rig the election. They're willing to change the order of the states. Um, they are willing to uh, completely block Marianne out of the media. It feels rich to say that running within the Democratic Party is manifestly and dem demonstrably more effective in actually changing the outcomes because of, of the pop structural public barriers free. than Cornell West, who at very least, you keep being very dismissive, Kyle, about this 5% matching I, first funds. First of all, I've said like two words when, in the past 10 minutes, okay? So I'm not being dismissive <laughs> about anything. I haven't gotten a fucking word in. <laughs> okay, 
what's what is it that you're champ I'm, chomping at the bit? It's to the say, structural Kyle. barriers against running as a third party, as rigged as it is by the DNC against uh, outsider Democrats, which it definitely is. It's even more rigged against third parties, which is why they always get like three percent of the vote. Which is literally and why Bernie got forty-three percent of the vote. Which is literally why people feel it is a structural advantage to get someone like Cornell West to 5% of the vote so they can get federal matching funds. To me as He'd a voter- he get 40% as a Democrat. For me as a voter in New York, I'm not interested in shoring up the Democratic Party. No, that's him getting his ideas out of shoring up Cornell West. That's I, the whole point. I am not a Democrat. I understand that. That's very clear. But I'm saying that would shore up <laughs> Cornell West. And the people who also don't want to vote for Joe Biden under any circumstances are not Democrats. And fundamentally, you can make your argument. I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate argument to make to Democrats. I think that Democrats should, might think that Joe Biden is a manifestly better Democrat than other Democrats. But it's not about whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's about what are your political goals. And yeah, I think that 100%. we share a lot of the same political but no, goals. There's a big one that but we don't on, share. But hold on. So I still don't understand. Just lay out for me. Yeah. The, like what in the ideal scenario happens and how does that constitute any sort of revolutionary change or help to further the goals that we largely share? Yeah, I think for one, getting federal matching funds for third party candidates, since I believe third parties are going to be a much better vehicle to actual meaningful change in this country than the Democratic Party, is infinitely uh, more significant a goal. But then third parties haven't gotten a single electoral vote in and 50 it's like years. Round and round and round and round. No, but it's circle. true because, I mean, look at Ross Perot had all the money in the world. It didn't matter. He didn't get one electoral vote. He didn't vote. get one electoral vote. Do, do you vote. agree that ranked choice voting needs to come first? That, that's the important question. Do you agree that if, if that, we get ranked choice voting, then yes, overnight, third parties become more viable. I think that Cornell West— But until West, we get them, it's they're not viable. I think that Cornell West running in a in a general election where he can—he ha, has been doing this. He's been talking about ranked choice voting in interviews, but continuing to talk about how the onus is on the Democratic Party to prevent the spoiler effect— he is in a position now running in a general election every time he goes on TV to say, if you're upset at me at being a spoiler, you need to look at the Democratic Party who across the country for the last decades has been purposefully undermining any ballot measures that effectively put into effect uh, ranked choice voting in Maine, in North Carolina, the way they attacked Matthew Ho. I am not the enemy. They are. And that's the burden shifting, the narrative burden shifting I think the left should be engaged in right now. To the extent that you think that Cornell West can ruin Biden's chances, isn't it Biden's responsibility to find those votes, not among disaffected third partiers who he doesn't, who don't owe him anything anyway, but the tens of thousands of millions of disaffected Democrats who aren't going to vote for him. We've all talked about this together. In Wisconsin, in 2016, there were 88,000 registered black voters who voted in 2012 who declined to vote in 2016. That's like two or three times the margin by which Hillary Clinton lost in that state alone. And yet we're sitting here talking about whether or not Cornel West is going to pull some third-party voters away again, from the Democratic it's, Party. It's the difference between what I would love to happen and the reality that we have experienced now. I mean, we've we tried it before in 2016. It did not help. What did they, we try in 2016? The third party effort. Jill Stein was not a spoiler. It is not those voters' fault who voted for you, like you guys that voted for Jill Stein. But she got blamed Donald anyway. Trump. But she got blamed. She got, and, and then the left was further marginalized as a result of it. Blame <laughs> so, guys. so I just I don't see the connection. If I did, I would love to vote for Cornell West. It would feel way better to vote for Cornell West. I share his politics almost 100%. But I don't see the connection between voting for Cornell West and achieving any of the aims. And I see a much more direct connection 
between protecting the Biden National Labor Relations Board and allowing this little budding, exciting, amazing, potentially transformational labor movement to actually grow. Whereas if Trump gets reelected, which is, listen, it's the fact, based on how the Democratic Party is going to respond to Cornell West's uh, election bid, it is more likely that Donald Trump gets elected with Cornell West in the race. And that, to me, is a massive loss because we know what his record is. We know what his National Labor Relations Board we, was. We know who his labor secretaries were and how they were engaged in all this union busting. And I, so I see a much more direct connection between that moving the ball in our direction than, you know, Cornell West getting 5%. And either his candidacy not really mattering at all or being used once again to, you know, smear the left and marginalize the left and say these are just the people that are interested in getting Trump elected. So to that second point, I I'm just going to be honest. Not only do I not care about arguments that the left is going to be smeared, I think it's silly because no matter what we do, the left is going to get smeared. Bernie won Nevada and it was, oh, my God, we're going to decapitate people in Central, Central Park. Uh, you know, it is, it is, I think, deeply unrealistic to expect that there's ever going to be a left movement that genuinely challenges power in this country that's not going to be smeared. And if you are choosing your political strategy on the basis of what's going to get you a pat on the head from MSNBC, and I know this, I'm not, that's not what I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to mischaracterize you, but that is but I'm naive. Just, listen, that's fine. And I agree with you. Left is going to be smeared. But the question is, what is actually going to move the ball I, I'm, forward? I'm confused by why you and I just don't that. Because I don't see... Because policy is all that matters at the end I, of I the day. I don't see how Cornell West getting but, 5% and helping to reelect Trump ends up with things why, why going in a better direction. Like that, Crystal? He, doesn't, he gets 5% and then the, the Green Party, a third party effort, it gets stronger and more well-funded and more able to compete in future elections. Until we have ranked choice voting... There is no even one percent viability for them. You I, can you admit that? Can you acknowledge who, who that? You that, that it's until we get ranked choice voting, no third party has any chance in hell. Who you agree do you with that, think right? Has been doing most of Are the you ranked choice. That? Who do you think? She's can not I gonna answer it? <laughs> it's a simple I'm question. I'm gonna answer it in my own time and my own words, Kyle. Respectfully, it's a simple one. The ranked choice voting thing. If we I, get I ranked say, choice voting, I, I go around. I do a lot of podcasts, and I don't know what's going on right now. It might be the phase of the moon. We had the double moon last month. But I'm getting a little frustrated with feeling shouted down and disrespected in every single space that I go into. I gotta say, I promise I'm gonna answer your your question, Kyle. Sit tight. I got it coming for you. I'll sit tight. I, who do you think has been doing the bulk and the best funded ranked choice voting advocacy in terms of getting on on ballots and getting it passed in the United States of America? Third party voters. The Libertarian Party. Yeah. Because unlike the Green Party, I'm no like fan of the Libertarian Party, but for obvious reasons, they were enormously better funded than the Green Party. And they, as a consequence, have been able to make much greater gains in actually getting ranked choice voting passed around the country. What I'm saying is that there's a tangible material benefit to getting more money for a Green Party, whatever third party happens to be, but right now all we have is the Green Party for obvious reasons. Getting them more money to do the work across the country to advance third parties uh, ranked choice voting, rather, is exactly the goal that you're articulating. So, yes, I do see a direct connection between your goal, your stated goal of getting ranked choice voting and voting for the Green Party. You know who's not going to fight for ranked choice voting? The Democratic Party. Here's so my we... point. Here's my point. There, There's not even 
a 1% chance or a 0.1% chance of Cornell West winning unless or until we get ranked choice voting. So I have to be honest, I feel like it's self-disenfranchisement to really like put all your effort into third parties before we get ranked choice, putting the cart before the horse, in my opinion. That's my point. And on on the issue of Democrats versus Republicans, we know either the Democrat or the Republican is going to win. And clearly we have a disagreement in terms of how good of a job Joe Biden is doing. Because like I said, I expected nothing of him, Brianna. I expected, this is the guy who brought us the Iraq War and the Patriot Act and NAFTA, and he's like the poster child of the conservative Democrat and the neoliberal. But then he gets in office and he does all these things which shock me. He massively reduced the drone war by over 90%. He, like I said, pulled out of Afghanistan. The Supreme Court overturned the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And the Democrats slipped into the IRA a provision that redefines carbon as a pollutant, which then allows the EPA to start protecting the environment again. If we didn't get that, and yes, that was brought to us by Democrats, we would be beyond fucked on the issue of climate change. We still are, but we'd be even more fucked if the EPA could and do basic EPA stuff. We have project labor agreements for hundreds of thousands of construction workers. That came to us from Biden. $15 minimum wage for federal contractors and employees. That's from Biden. Gun reform with red flag laws and closing the boyfriend loophole. Those are definitely good things. Katanji Brown Jackson on the court. A George Floyd executive order to create a registry of abusive cops. We have the PACT Act, which is health care for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits, which every single Republican voted against. We, he added 800,000 manufacturing jobs. I didn't expect any of these things. So when I talk about Biden the way I do, it's because none of these things were on the menu and we got them. So now when I look at the fact it's either going to be Trump or Biden, a standard generic Republican or standard generic Democrat, the way I feel now versus the way I felt in the past is like, oh, this is definitely way better. If you ask me in 2019 or 2020, I'd be like, I don't know, man, flip a coin. 52% maybe a Democrat's a little bit better than a Republican. Now I'm looking at it like it's not even close. One blows the other out of the water. And all I care about is the policy. And when we have all these uh, policies, I mean, we have a 15% corporate minimum tax rate now. That is not something we had previously. You'd have corporations paying nothing in, in taxes, or they'd even get a negative tax rate, which is a subsidy, effectively, from the taxpayers. These things are not nothing. We have a 1% tax on stock buybacks. They're cracking down on wealthy tax cheats. Like, all these things are very good. They're objectively good. So do you agree that Biden is better than what we expected on the left? Maybe you've already set your expectations on the ground, and it seems like he's surpassed your expectations. He has not surpassed mine. I don't. I don't know what you want me to say. But he's about not better that. than what you thought. No, That's he's not question. better he, than what I thought he really? was. Really? No. Do you expect him to be better than <laughs> I did for sure? I, well, I expected him to. Well, I didn't really expect him to fulfill his campaign pro promises, but I'm not going to pat him on the back when he's so flagrantly lied about them. No. But let me ask you a related but different question. I mean, how do you assess the difference between a Trump and a Biden? acknowledging that, I mean, I think you would acknowledge it's not, Cornell West is I, not going to be president. I, I'm going to be honest with you. If it's about convincing me how Brianna Joy Gray is going to vote, Brianna Joy Gray lives in D.C., is, is constructively disenfranchised, and Brianna Joy Gray also is sympathetic to accelerationist arguments. So I am not afraid of Trump, and I am not going to, I will never for the rest of my life, I don't care if I live in Pennsylvania, I don't care if I live in Georgia, vote out of fear. That's not who I am. That's not who I was raised. That's just me. And I recognize that I am radical, I recognize I'm not telling anybody to be like me, but that's who I am. So, but just to get back to the question, I mean, do you acknowledge that Biden is better than Trump? Do you, I genuinely want to know, like, how do you assess? Do you see they're like roughly the same? I think it same? depends on what metric they're using. There are people who will take everything that you just said and say if Biden escalating in Ukraine the way he has been doing, missiles going off deeper, closer to Russia— that are Western in origin, and the doomsday clock 
tipping, ticking down on World War III the way it has been done, cancels out all of the meaningful gains that you just articulated so nicely. If it comes down to World War III versus that litany of um, achievements that you just articulated, there are people that, with the hindsight of living in the nuclear holocaust, would say, well, I guess that Trump actually was a better president. But I don't, I don't want Who's to more likely to get us World War III, but though? I, I definitely I think it's Trump. I definitely think it's Trump more likely to get us World War III. I don't want to know what people think. You disagree I want with to that? know. I want to know what you think. I, Do you I, think I, that I, that's accurate? Because I, to I me, I look be. at the record. We don't, we don't know until history happens what history is going to do. I wouldn't have expected that under Biden, we would have gotten in the middle of this war with Ukraine and Russia. I would not. That wasn't on my bingo card either. Yeah, but we know that Trump was actually more hawkish towards Russia than He built like, up on NATO's border. Obama he put was, troops on NATO's border. We know what he did with Iran. We know he said he was going to get on Af Afghanistan. Biden actually did it. it so we can we can evaluate these two claims. This, this, that we shouldn't believe anything that Donald a, Trump says about Ukraine. A, a toxic this is literally just a vote blue no matter who converse, a lesser two no, equals conversation. No, it's a let's discuss the facts and how you weigh them conversation. Here, 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 how about this? Biden can be 10 times better than Trump. Let's concede that for the sake of argument. I'm not voting for him. And millions of other people feel the same way because it has absolutely nothing to do with that. I, I don't know how else to express this to you guys. Kyle, it's not that there is a disinterest or a failure to recognize what are meaningful changes. But there is a realization that acknowledging gains when the possibility of what someone could be doing to help the population that elected them, when there is a huge gap there, that is, it is, it can be papered up by championing someone's accomplishments. And people are reluctant to give credit precisely because they think it will end the conversation about how much further people should be pushed. So it feels akin to saying, Jeff Bezos was walking down the street and he gave a fiver to a homeless that, person. It's not that. Oh, my gosh. Aren't you? Are, don't you want to pat him on the back? And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> on some level, I'm glad the guy, Brianna. the homeless guy can give his sandwich. But your 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 framing of the student debt issue is accurate. Yes. Is precisely what the problem is. That's, it's not a problem. Look, I, I am actually discussing the facts that I learned through reading a thousand articles on the case. Now, if I bring up those facts and it triggers some idiots into hating me, so be it. They can hate me all they want. What the facts, facts still matter. What are you talking about? Okay, are you I didn't expect him to appeal the cases. He appealed the cases. I didn't expect him to do the Higher Education Act after the Supreme Court slapped it down. He did the Higher Education Act. I, I didn't expect him to do any of it, and he did it. And this is something that but if I said early on, Biden's going to do nothing on student loan debt, everybody on the left would have been like, you're right, he's going to do nothing. Now he does five, six different things on it. And it's like people go, no, 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 doesn't count, doesn't count. I'm not saying what he's doing is perfect. Obviously, the best thing to do is to wipe it all out through executive order. And he has the authority to do that. That'd be the best thing to do. He didn't do that. But can we at least acknowledge the facts of what went down? And I see this rugged insistence. Honestly, it's like Biden derangement syndrome among some people on the left. And it's like Democrat derangement syndrome among some people on the left. The fact that... We can't all agree very quickly that, well, obviously Democrats are not 10 times better than Republicans. They're 100 times better than Republicans. And even if you are somebody who's a purist and you're on the left, you can acknowledge a W in the instances you get it while still pushing for more. I mean, a perfect example is what's happening in Minnesota right now. Minnesota has a one-seat Democrat majority. We got universal free school meals, legal weed, carbon-free electricity by 2040, tax rebates for the working class up to $1,300 if you make under $150,000 a year, 12 weeks paid family leave, 12 weeks paid sick leave. They banned conversion therapy. They did red flag laws for guns. They did universal background checks for guns. They did automatic voter registration, public free college if you make under 80K, a ban on PFAs, which is the forever chemicals, $2.2 billion increase in K-12 school funding, sectoral bargaining, bargaining for nursing home workers. These things are all not little wins. They are 
huge wins. And I still see this insistence, like we're back in 2016 or something, where people are like, nope, Democrats and Republicans are either equally bad or actually jujitsu move, Republicans are the lesser evil. And I think it's idiotic. It's doomerist, it's nihilist, it's people who are refusing to acknowledge reality and they'd rather narrative hump all day talking about Democrats are so bad, Democrats are so bad, Democrats are so bad, but oh yeah, I'm a leftist. Going back to the student debt point, it is kind of telling to me, Kyle, that you so quickly, you injected your own low expectations, subjective, personal, and low expectations into the argument to say, well, because Joe Biden did more than I subjectively believed was possible, I am going to, you're accusing me of minimizing the accomplishments. I think that you might be minimizing his failures and the extent to which that he knowingly, it seems, lied about what he was willing to do and, in fact, dramatically underachieved his campaign promises. And for you, that might be a hop, skip, and a jump. Okay, but he did more than I expect. You're setting your expectations lower than the expectations that he set for the American public in the context of his campaign. And I, I completely respect and appreciate that that doesn't bother you as much as it bothers me. I don't know if it's because... I have experienced six figures student debt. I don't know your life. I'm not trying to make any presumptions about it. I don't know if it's because I have I had a certain kind of life experiences or that other people who kind of share my view have these kind of life experiences. But for millions of us, 44 million in fact, that kind of bait and switch is unforgivable when you recognize, as you have both recognized, that it was in his power to sign an executive order, to deliver overwhelmingly for the people that whose votes he needs right now. So the argument is not with me. The argument is with the millions of Americans who feel betrayed by Joe Biden and his campaign promises. If we have a contract agreement for you to fix the hole in my roof and I give you $100, and you come into my house and instead you restage my living room and it looks beautiful, that simply wasn't the agreement. And so I am fine. I'm happy to acknowledge the furniture placement is gorgeous. I love the floral arrangements, but that's not what we bargained for. And if, you're, if, you're, if your desire is to push the Democratic Party left, you have to, Chris Hedges says, says this all the time, it's a politics of fear. If you are more afraid of electing Trump than the Democratic Party is, you are never going to be able to exert any leverage on them at all. And I understand that's a risky position. I understand Trump getting reelected is scary. I understand that there are meaningful ways in which he's hurt real people in real ways. I understand all of that. And we just have a difference of opinion about what the priorities are. You said in that viral clip, Crystal, if your priority is reelecting the Democratic Party, then X, Y, and Z. And I think that was good that you said that because you articulated what the priority is for you. No, that is but, not the priority for me. The policy is the priority for me, Brie. And I think you know that. And I think it's disingenuous to say otherwise. Let me just say, though, is it worth, I mean, I think you probably, you care a lot about the labor movement, right? Sure. So is it worth letting that baby be smothered in the crib in order to what? I mean, that's the piece that I don't understand. I understand all of your critique of Joe Biden. I think it's reasonable. Okay. I actually am not as strong as Kyle in yeah, terms I'm of the intentions on more the student of a Biden loan than she right? is for sure. And she gets accused of being a bigger one than me, but that's but a side point. I like, I understand your critiques of Joe Biden very well. Many of them, if not all of them, I basically share. What I don't understand is just simply a tactical question of how 
focusing on a third-party effort helps gets us towards the goals that we share. That's the piece that, to me, recent history proves it has the complete opposite effect, whereas we do see actual progress that is possible made through the Democratic primary process. And I know you accept that. Like, you don't, you're not a Marianne hater. I'm not putting that on you whatsoever. But I don't understand how risking the reelection of Trump and allowing a Trump union busting NLRB to quash what is the most hopeful thing happening in American politics, which is the labor movement. I don't understand how that moves us forward. Like that just doesn't compute for me. Well, for one, I'd say, and I don't mean to at all minimize the value of this latest uh, ruling, but I have been heartened by the energy and the gains made by the labor movement prior to that uh, over the last few years. Which were enabled by the Biden NLRB. I mean, there were key keys. The workers get all the, listen, they do the work. I'm not trying to take anything away from them. But there were key decisions that were made in the Starbucks organizing drive in particular, in the Amazon labor union drive as well, that enabled those workers to do their thing that wouldn't happen under Trump. It feels as though, one, the question has been asked and answered several times. You don't agree with my priority. Uh, No, no, I I still don't understand it. And I may just be dense, but explain again. I agree with Kyle that ranked choice voting is a priority. Yeah. I believe that getting the Green Party more powerful, getting them federal matching funds, enables them to join in the Libertarian Party, which has been the most successful advocate for ranked choice voting in the country, to continue to further those efforts. My vote for Joe Biden does nothing to advance what I think will be the ultimate path toward left victory in the United States, which is getting rid of the corporate duopoly. I don't see voting for Joe Biden as advancing that core effort at all. So rank, so, I, so rank choice voting is kind of like, I'm just trying to understand, is like the end all be all. That's the number one priority. And so you would actually support the Libertarian Party, the American Constitution Party, the Forward Party, whatever, if that it advanced that goal. And that's the priority over everything else. Would I'm just I, trying to understand. Would I personally support an effort by any of those parties to advance rank choice voting? Yeah, of course. No, but and, would you support those parties? Like, because ranked choice well, voting why, is so important. Why would to you? I when I could vote for the Green Party that actually shares my ideals as well? Well, I'm just trying to understand where your priorities lie. Is it like you're my, basically my, a single issue voter and it's ranked choice voting? Well, it's not a single issue. It's breaking the corporate duopoly. That's it. I th- this this is the this is the fundamental issue. I think that for many people, they are very wary of validating what they see as a two-headed snake. And it's it, it, this comes back to your concern, Kyle, about people not willing to acknowledge these successes. I think that we all understand that there is a way that the two corporate parties play off of each other. Democrats get to keep lowering the bar because the, the Republicans are worse. They both play these uh, culture war games back and forth with each other where at the end of the day we're told, well, you got to vote for the Democrats because gay rights and trans rights and black rights and immigrant rights and all of these rights are on the line. And, it, and I said this in 2020 as well. It's not that those arguments aren't true. The question is, how do we ever disentangle ourselves from that? Because it's I, always going to be the case that some worser thing is coming down the pike precisely because we've enabled that to be the case. And many people, and I don't feel quite this way, but many people feel as though 
there is an energy suck that happens with even paying attention and voting in these general elections. I think that your 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 points about what's happened on the state level in Minnesota, et cetera, are much stronger. I know that, for example, Sabi Sab is always making the case that, you know, don't forgo electoral politics, focus more on what's happening on the local level. And I think that is a perfectly reasonable argument to make as well. But I I I do think that there is a failure to recognize the extent to which there is a validation that takes place of the of the status quo that people are trying to negotiate as they reckon with real gains that the Biden administration has effectuated. Yeah. So let me respond to that. I, I don't want to validate the status quo as much as I want to acknowledge the positive things that exist and have happened recently, which I think is some evidence that in some ways limited, but some ways we are moving in a better direction. So let me share a point of agreement because we've been arguing the whole time. It'd be nice to have a point of agreement real quick. Uh, if we did, like, if we wake up tomorrow and there's ranked choice voting everywhere, I would be the biggest Green Party simp on the planet. I would be insufferable. I would basically spend every day advocating for the Green Party. The reason I don't do that is because we don't have ranked choice voting, and I do feel like uh, the choice is effectively just down to a Democrat or Republican in the general election, whoever they may be. Now, having said that, um, I don't want to validate the status quo. I just want to let everybody know in some ways we are moving in, in a good direction. You brought up the state parties there. Uh, there are six states now that did free school meals for kids. And in some of those states, that, that's even breakfast and lunch. Um, and people are not going to be surprised to hear this. Those are Democratic states. <laughs> and you have uh, the Republican Study Committee, which is basically three quarters of the House GOP. They're pushing to ban any and all states from doing free school meals for kids. They mm -hmm. released this in their, in their priority. So when I look at that, I feel like I try to hold the two thoughts in my mind at the same time. I want Cornell West to be president, but I also know that given how structurally deficient and biased the system is right now, it's not going to happen. So given that, yes, I would prefer. Let me ask you this, because I feel like there's a better way to put it. Forget about voting. Voting's irrelevant, right? Let's just say it's election night 2024. It is all of our worst nightmare, Biden versus Trump. Not voting, not voting. But that night when you know it's going to be Biden or Trump winning, are you sitting there like, yeah, of course I would prefer Biden win over Trump. Honestly, it's like 50 50. I don't care. OK. All right. That's, that, that's not, an answer. It's not Look, my party. That's I, an I answer. That's, that's it's an answer. Radical people are going to be very upset with me. I don't care. I don't I care. That's there will be people who agree with you. I don't think you. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> They're my audience. And we have I have come to this position after talking with I got to say, I loved Colin. I'm sad that they're shutting it down. But part of the reason I loved it is because I would talk to people who were calling me. I would hear their doors dinging in the background because they were doing food delivery or their EMTs or they're like, and they, the, I, it, this gets characterized as a privileged position that you don't care who wins Trump or Biden. My experience is the people who have been taking this position, this is just anecdotal, tend to be people are the lower end of the economic spectrum who do feel like their lives aren't meaningfully different under a Trump versus a Biden, and who would rather rock the boat and throw a monkey wrench in the machinery if there's even a fracture of a sliver of a chance that it has some outcome other than what we've been experiencing for their entire lives. But the, Fair um, enough. You gave a direct answer, yeah, so, I, the, so I respect it. The other thing I would say, though, because you, you said you're basically an accelerationist. Like, you think things I'm, need I'm, to get better in order for them to get worse. I feel— I mean, worse in order for my them to get better. Given my own class privilege, I am reluctant to personally put those wheels into motion, but I very much respect particularly people who, like I just was talking about, who do feel that way. I think that's a legitimate perspective. I'm not—I feel like it's not my place to say, let's make the world burn because I'm going to be okay in, a, in either right. way. But I, I, I am but open to that perspective. colors your view and how you approach these things and why you wouldn't really care whether it's Biden or Trump. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember 
I remember the night of 2016. I I wasn't. I don't know. How did you guys feel? I wasn't personally devastated. So, I felt in some weird way vindicated. That's a very. This is what we had wait, been wait. telling them was going to happen the I, whole time. So I agree with you completely about 2016, right? And I voted for Jill Stein in 2016. 2020, um, I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't, I didn't vote for anybody. It was sort of like, a, no, seriously, I think they're roughly equal. I think Biden's around the edges better, but I thought he was going to be as conservative a president as he was a senator. So I was like, okay, whatever. But on the night of 2020, I was actually like, oh, for the love of God, I hope Trump loses. And, you know, it's because I, I see everything he did. I mean, look, I can run through all the bad things Biden did. That's my standard rant that I've been doing for a long time now. But when you look at Trump, I mean, I don't want to sidetrack the conversation here, but like the 91 felonies that he's charged with for defrauding the United States with fake electors and effectively trying to steal the election. Like to me, I kind of agree with the people who are like on that alone. I mean, this is fucking crazy. We've never been here before. We're talking about the peaceful transfer of power is genuinely in question now in a way that it never was before. Let me let me say in terms of my view mm -hmm. on Trump, the reason why I'm not even a little bit sympathetic towards the accelerationist view is, first of all, I just think like, you know, things get worse. Sometimes they just get worse. And I sure. think there's a real possibility that, you know, we go in the rather than a leftist utopia, we go in the direction of like a fascist police state. I think that's a real possibility on the table. And if things get worse, I think that's probably more likely than the outcome we would like to see. But specifically on Trump, in some ways, the worst part of the Trump era has been not that it has created a divisive politics, because I believe in a divisive politics. It's just about where the divides should be. And he has made politics all about just how do you feel about the person of Donald Trump? And I think that that has been a significant barrier in terms of making any of the arguments that we want to make for a different world and better policies, et cetera. Because, yeah, you could say, oh, they'll just say Ron DeSantis or whoever is worse than Trump. But you got to acknowledge there is something a little special about the dude who's going to like do a January 6th and like, you know, have an insurrection, et cetera. He's a particularly potent villain that is weaponized very effectively. And so it creates a divisive politics that is divided along all the long, wrong lines. So that's why I'm not sympathetic to the view that like, oh, maybe if we elect Trump, somehow that'll make things better in an undescribed, you know, a process that's three years down the road or three decades down the road that no one can really explain. I'm not sympathetic to that because I've seen the way that Trump has made our politics worse in real time in a way that has not been beneficial. Well, for one, I would say to the extent that we are inching closer to uh, fascism as opposed to the socialist utopia, we got exactly here doing vote blue no matter who. So I don't think that any kind of concerted Green Party campaign or effort, third but party. But really If we voted blue though. no matter who, Al Gore would have been president. We would have never had Bush and Hillary would have beaten Trump. So vote blue no matter who would have been a wait whole a bunch of standard milquetoast Democrats. Now you're making the argument that it's third party spoilers fault that Al Gore wasn't elected in 2000. No, no, no. Uh, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm saying you you accused hey, no the vote blue no matter who argument. I'm saying if people had, quote unquote, voted blue no matter who, Democrats would have won every election. That's the point I'm making. Well, the no. vote blue no matter who means everybody votes so Democrat. For one, more registered Democrats in Florida voted for George Bush. I know. I agree with than you. Than they did Al Gore. Al Gore was failed to win his own state. I, it, I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree with you on so that. So I'm, I'm struggling with the argument here. How? What does George? But the, then there's a no, you just said we all. got where we so are now is, because of vote blue no matter who. And the point I was making is in a real quote unquote vote blue no matter who, 
there would have been no Republicans elected if everybody votes Democrat. That's the point I'm making. Vote blue no matter who doesn't mean everyone votes Democrat. Vote blue no matter who means the Democratic Party uses coercion and guilt to get people to vote for it instead of delivering on what polls demonstrate overwhelming majorities of Americans want, which is left policies. That's what the, the pernicious nature of vote blue no matter who is that it absolves the Democratic Party of having to look at polls that say two-thirds of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run because he's too old, that 88 percent of Democratic voters want Medicare for all, that 60 percent of Floridians, a state that went for Trump, wanted a $15 minimum wage. But Joe Biden, whose praises we've been singing a lot today, purposefully stripped on order of the parliamentarian from must-pass COVID legislation so that that one core promise that he made to Bernie as Bernie dropped out after like three days of not being, uh, uh, who Bernie, sorry, endorsed after three days after dropping out was immediately thrown under the, the bus. But let me just, just to interject real quick, because I don't want you to get the misimpression that I'm not aware of the negative things around Joe Biden. He also said he was going to get back in the Iran agreement, did not get back in the Iran agreement. We're still terribly cucked to Saudi Arabia as a country as they do a genocide where he's still sanctioning Afghanistan. He's super conservative on the border, almost to the point of being as extreme as Trump. He did the Willow Project. He didn't give us a public option. He didn't give us $15 minimum wage. He didn't get the original bill back better through. He screwed the rail workers union, which is something you very potently covered. So I'm not here to pretend like Joe Biden only did good things. I'm trying to do to the best of my ability, explain what I think are the facts on both sides of the equation. Here are the good things he did, here are the bad things he did, and then people could just make up their own mind as to how they want to proceed in a showdown between Trump or Biden, who they would prefer. Do you, do you think that Biden is better than Obama? Um, I, I'm open to that argument. I, I, again, my fundamental, I don't, what, what purpose does that serve for me? I think well, it's everything, here's, here's my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, that's the term, like, is the person going to do good things that move us in a better direction? Especially, you know, I've brought up labor unions a million times, but for me, that's really central. Or are they not? And I guess my, my question for you is because you were sort of like, all right, let's acknowledge. Sure. Let's say Biden's 10 times better than Trump. Like how much better would he have to be before you're like, OK, it's that's not just it's not just lesser evil. It's not just vote blue no matter that's, who. That's, it's actually worth question. voting for this person. He would have had to have done everything that he could have done. Even Bernie wouldn't have done so everything he could even, have done, in my opinion. <laughs> even in comparison, what, what kind of statement is that? I just not, think. Wait a minute. I'm not saying he could have. I'm not taking me. a shot at you. I'm just saying I don't think policy. I, I even somebody like Bernie, who's principled, I don't think he I, even delivers on everything. He has to fulfill miracles. I'm not saying he has to accomplish everything that he says he wants to do. I'm saying he has to have done everything he could. Everything have done. he could have done. You could do a lot as president. You could do a lot. So this is this is the issue with Biden. Not that he didn't wave a wand and create Medicare for all, because we can all acknowledge that even if it were Bernie Sanders, that would have been an uphill battle. But what I choose to focus on on my show and what I really appreciate about reporting by people like David Sirota and The Lever is that he exposes the gap between what these people have done and what was literally possible either because of the nature of executive orders, whether it's walking us through the parliamentarian brouhaha and the $15 minimum wage, because so much of neoliberal democratic politics is obscuring that they really could have done things to make lives better for all of us behind the veneer of uh, insidery hill jargon or the idea that the Republicans are the big baddies that couldn't allow us anything to pass. 
And I believe that my job is to cut through those narratives to expose to the public that the Democratic Party is making choices. They're not you just know, he could have done Medicare in the football. He, I actually I'll go even further than you. I agree. He could have done Medicare for all with the stroke of a pen. And it was David Dayen over at the American yeah. Prospect who laid this out, who said basically, look, under a national emergency, yeah. you have the authority under Obamacare to base, to basically do single payer health care. And they did it, I think, in Libby, Montana, because there was some yeah. issue there with health. So he had the ability to do it. So sure. I agree with you. He could have done that. He didn't do that. The only point I was trying to make is that even with somebody like Bernie, I think there would be a little bit of a gap between what he says when he's on the, the podium and if he were to actually be president. I think a guy like Bernie would deliver on way more of the stuff that he says, because I think he's more honest uh, among government officials. But you know, certainly Biden, there's definitely going to be a gap there between what he says and what he would do. But to be fair, like I said before, I do think Biden kind of ran as a very, I mean, he wasn't as conservative as like Mike Bloomberg in the 2020 race, but he was pretty conservative. He was running as a pretty conservative Democrat, in my opinion. Yeah, so, he, he was, but he still said, we're going to get a $15 minimum wage. We're going to cancel. I'm not arguing with you. I don't know why you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not arguing <laughs> with you, Bree. Kyle, if you, if you say that he ran as a conservative, what it sounds like you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a furtherance of you saying the bar was on the ground. He fulfilled my to expectations. Me, it was, yeah. But what I'm telling you. No, he what surpassed I, my expectations. But he fulfilled, fulfilled, surpassed, whatever. What I'm saying to you is that you have constructed a bar that's lower than Biden constructed for himself. No, but I see that's I see I don't agree with that. I was going based off of his commentary at the time. He literally said and ran on nothing will fundamentally text. change. Nothing that's will fundamentally change. That's true. Come on. I understand <laughs> what you're saying. There are some examples to the to the opposite. I did agree you, with you. Did you did he not run on a $15 minimum wage? Yes or no? He definitely did. Did he run on canceling all student debt? Yes or we're, no? We're not that's making that the I'm argument. not sure about. We, he literally did. I thought hold it was 10,000. But hold on. We're yes, not even. Sorry, $10,000 yeah, for, for all people under 100. Yeah, I thought it was that. We're not arguing with you yeah, I'm not that trying to argue he couldn't with you right have done now. more. Or we're that he fulfilled every promise or whatever. But what I want to get from you, though, is in terms of how you see your role as independent media. Yeah. Um, and you said you see it as exposing the gap between like the Democratic Party neoliberal rhetoric and what they actually deliver, what they could deliver, what they could deliver. And I do plenty of that as well. And, you know, we feature the lever reporting a lot on breaking points, et cetera. But when does it become not just you're exposing the gap, but you're actually being presenting a dishonest impression of the Biden administration if the positive things that do happen? don't get any acknowledgement or coverage. I, for one, I think that there is a multi-billion dollar liberal media sphere whose job it is. And who your audience doesn't trust. They don't talk about trust. these things. They don't talk who about these things. Who your audience doesn't trust That, that is not my fault. I, I have a bunch of poor people giving me $5 a month to give them something that they can't get with their cable subscription. I'm sorry, it is not my job. People are not paying me the, I'm not, the bulk I'm not, of their minimum wage salary no, no, no. to Bri, have them Bri, have not, tell them what a great job not, Biden did but somewhere. Listen, I'm not attacking. I just genuinely want to understand your and view. So you also feel the media like, doesn't talk about these the good things I mentioned Biden do. Like nobody talks about those. You things. feel like nobody brings those up. Can I? Is this sure. representative of your view? The media doesn't talk about these failings of Democrats, and so they can get the good stuff about Democrats somewhere else. I'm going to just focus on the negative things, the places where they fall short. Yeah. I mean, is that so you would acknowledge that if people are just consuming, for example, your podcast, that they're not getting the complete picture of what's going on? I think that anybody consuming any one news source, particularly an independent journalist who puts out one hour episodes twice a week. Oh, but you do write many things, admit, too. Many of plenty, which, of plenty of content. Well, sure. Sure. I mean, they're certainly not getting full news if they're watching Rising, <laughs> but 
uh, the, the content the, 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 <laughs> that I'm responsible for in terms of picking topics. Um, no, like I, the episode I'm going to record later today is about AI. It's a, it's a, it's a niche subject. It's not a new show. So I, I don't, I don't quite understand what the takeaway is from that. Of course, I'm offering what my goal is, is to offer, to fill in the holes and what I perceive to be in the media at large. So I, I understand that because that used to be much closer to my perspective. Mm -hmm. And I have shifted my thinking because I feel like when I only covered basically like Democratic Party sucks, this is their failures, et cetera, et cetera. It began to create a misleading impression that the Republicans are better, that the Democrats never do anything good. And so it has caused me to reevaluate some of the coverage decisions that I would have made in the past. So this is not to you can cover whatever the hell you want well, to cover, because but I, it's it. I just wanted to understand the lens you were bringing to it, because I think that makes a difference in terms of like what stories you would include and the things that you would focus on. Well, I think on. that might be true if you aren't also aren't covering that Republicans are bad, which I do as well when it's relevant and especially when it's a coverage of why Republicans are bad that are different than what the mainstream media is doing. So, for example, I just had an exchange on my last episode about this because my guests seem to be largely unaware of the legitimacy of the claims in the Georgia indictment against Trump. And there is a section of the left which takes the position that, well, Trump isn't the real problem and the media is unfair to Trump and uh, Trump derangement syndrome is what it is with Rachel mm -hmm. Maddow and that. So I'm just not going to listen to any of those kind of arguments. I just don't care. Right. And I think, I mean, like, I don't care about as much as many, many other things. And I think it takes up too much energy. But I also need people to understand that it wasn't just a one-six thing. It was this conspiracy to overturn the election that people should take seriously. Um, so I, you know, and we cover those things as they, as they come up. The trucker, you know, whatever it is that comes up. Tucker Carl, we did a whole Tucker Carlson series last summer. Like Obama's gay. Did you know that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Robbie can tell you about it. Um, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a topic of discussion. Somewhere. The other question that I that I just want to understand from your perspective, because it's something that I've grappled with too, is: Do you worry about feeding a sense of like doomerism, cynicism, nihilism? No, Nothing can ever change. Quite the opposite. Nothing has made me feel more demoralized than Joe Biden getting elected. My, Oh, my mother says, don't bring me into these conversations. <laughs> um, but, you know, we left the country in, two, in 1992. She said the, the, the atmosphere felt very similar when Bill Clinton got elected. There were people who were leftists and independent voters and, and um, socialists back then who could tell, who foresaw that Bill Clinton was going to serve to validate a neoliberal strategy. His successes were came at the cost, a real cost of left movements. Bill Clinton managed to effectuate harms against historically marginalized people that the right could only have dreamed of between his cuts to the welfare state and the crime bill. And this is part of why a lot of people bristle, myself included, when they are forced to answer questions about, well, who's really worse? I don't know, if you're someone who's languishing in jail under a three-strike rule, maybe you have a very different perspective over who's worse. Uh, Bill Clinton or George Bush. 
And and it's subjective. And that's like I, I'm not in a position of telling people what they should or should not care about. The problem is that so many of these people have been such bad actors in so many instances that it's it's insulting to make people to, to rank them when they have so many in so many instances been so personally harmed and affected by even the good guy in the comparison. That's why I, it feels disrespectful, to be honest, to ask people to weigh in when under both systems, under both times, types of leadership, they've been so roundly disrespected and ground under the heel. Could I jump in? Sure. So I'm both extremely sympathetic, but then at the very end is where I, I disagree. So I think that point you make about Bill Clinton and HW and all that stuff, I think that's totally correct. And that's 100% the same as my analysis. Again, where we differ is like, I just think Biden is so much better than Obama, than Bill Clinton. He's honestly, I'd say the best president since LBJ. And of course, LBJ was effectively forced to sign the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And he did uh, the, the Great Society and the War on Poverty. So that that's where we, we differ at that very last part. So I'm with you on Bill Clinton. I'm with you on Obama. I just think that when you look at the totality of the evidence when it comes to Biden and all of the policies he's done, the horrendous ones and the ones that are good, I just think the, the, the conclusion to me is so clear that if you know it's going to be Trump or Biden in a general election, then putting voting aside, forget voting, even just like preference as to who might win on election night. When you look at Biden or Trump and you have Trump literally charged with 91 felonies, tried to overturn the election, literally says, I want to suspend the Constitution if I get elected again, not even to bring up like the million and one policies that he did, which were almost universally bad. There's like 200 bad ones. And maybe the only good ones were like the First Step Act and pardoning Alice Johnson. And I can think of like a handful of good ones, but almost overwhelmingly bad. I guess that's the, the core of our disagreement is that last part. But I'm with you on the Clinton one. I think you're we're in total alignment on that one. Can I just to, to further flesh that out? Because to me, it's not just a weighing of like Obama did this, but Biden did that and Clinton did this, but but Biden did that. I actually see the thrust of the Biden economic policy as being a break with that Clinton, Reagan, Bush, Obama, neoliberal order in some significant ways. I mean, Biden is, again, a million critiques and I could go through them and I have gone through them. But Biden is, you know, maintaining some of the protectionist policies on trade. Um, that have actually helped to rebuild a manufacturing base. The CHIPS Act the, and the Infl Inflation Reduction Act in particular are actual industrial policy, which is total opposite of the Obama, TPP, all free trade all day long or NAFTA. And that it's a total 180 from that direction. And then when you add to that the antitrust, you know, the trust busting and really trying to rework, you know, a, a check on corporate power and the labor gains that I've talked about ad nauseum at this point. I don't just see it as like, let me add this list versus this list and compare and contrast. I actually see an, a real break from some of the core tenets of neoliberalism. And that's why I see him as so clearly, obviously superior to Trump, but also so clearly superior to the Hillary Clinton, Obama, Clinton Democrats of the past that I've hated. I think that's a reasonable perspective to have. I just don't share it. And fair enough. Why, that's fair but enough. why? <laughs> <laughs> she thinks he's as bad as Obama or as bad as Bill Clinton, yeah, right? But I, my, is yeah, that but fair? I, I, mean, I get that, but I want to know the specific. That, what was a really good question, yeah. which is what would it take for me to give full faith and credit to Joe Biden. And I'm sorry, doing what the bare minimum of Democrats should have been doing 
this entire time before the neoliberal turn is not sufficient to me. It seems to me that the pandemic and the economic crisis forced the hand of both Donald Trump at the end and then Joe Biden into, I would also like to say that Donald Trump picking up on some of that anti-TPP anti uh, populist stuff also forced Biden's hand, but forced, forced them to actually do nation building. It forced them to do the CHIPS Act, to realize that we have these supply chain issues that could bring the country to its knees. It forced them to invest in or enable them to invest in infrastructure and do a lot more spending than they might have been able to do in different circumstances. It forced them to give people money and buoy them up to get them through a crisis. But I am very skeptical that that represents a significant or permanent change in attitude when you see the speed with which they have been willing to cut all of those policies off. The short term, a couple years. yeah, the short in the short term stuff, I 100 percent agree. Um, they these bought, are choices, they, by the way, as oh, with the student debt to end the moratorium. They, to stop what, it. What basically happened is they bought into like the Larry Summers inflation mm -hmm. fear mongering. Inflation is real and it's a real problem for people. But they were like, oh, the whole cause is like this little bit of money that people got in their bank accounts. And so they ran away from Build Back Better, mm -hmm. which was the program that was supposed to permanently co codify some of these social safety net mm -hmm. pieces that genuinely helped people. And they just sort of abandoned that. Mm -hmm. So on that, 100% agreement. And it's Ron Klein and also, versus Jeff what, Dines. But they decoupled. To... Remember, procedurally, again, what happened as well. They yeah, were yeah. able to mm -hmm. neuter it because they decoupled it from what, again, was the more popular right, the Republican buy-in infrastructure side of things. But I'm talking, so I think those pieces are really important, really important. And they're my some of my biggest disappointments with the Biden administration. I'm talking more about the long-term trajectory that I feel has been markedly different um, on a, like, you know, a fundamental ideological level versus Clinton and Obama. And this is the part where I have been surprised because Biden, by his record, I mean, he's been a dyed-in-the-wool neoliberal basically since he got into Washington. And so to see him, you know, mounting some anything approaching a serious industrial policy, anything approaching like serious labor building exercise, anything approaching like serious antitrust um, check on corporate power, that has been not only surprising to me, and it's not about what my expectations are necessarily, but I also genuinely see it as an ideological break from well, the neoliberal era and something that a, a direction that is worth preserving and is not just like eh, he's a little better than Trump, but like seriously, significantly better than Trump and better than other Democratic presidents well, in our lifetime. That, that was also one of the things that happened in the midterms. The three big issues in the midterms were abortion, uh, all, like a lot of the Republicans being election deniers. And then the third one was the industrial policy, because in the states that were directly impacted by the various bills that are bringing back Inflation factory jobs, those yeah. those states overwhelmingly voted for Democrats. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about. I do agree, though, with what you said about uh, when they decoupled it. And like that was all weaselly nonsense. Honestly, I think the biggest difference is Ron Klain in the in was his chief of staff early on. Mm. And I think he was probably more or less steering the ship because Biden's just a zombie. And then I think in the it was Jeff Zients who took over for him, who's a corporate lobbyist. So I think there has been sort of a big shift away from most of the good things that I point out that he did. I think he did more early on. And then as time went by, now he's got Jeff Zients, a corporate lobbyist, as his chief of staff. And I think, I think it has Klain gone in a markedly also, worse like, direction. From had, had, 
Didn't he also have like a big pharma background or a Raytheon background or something, something like I'm, that? I'm sure, I, I mean, he's, like a, was, he's a DC creature. Let's not be like but science is worse, delusional, right? but science is definitely worse. Yeah. yeah. It's a big change in their policy directions. Under let, let me ask you this, because you've been asking me a lot of questions about what I hope to get out of my vote and what I see as a path to change. Um, I want to put that question back to you too, because it does seem to me, following your logic, Crystal, if these labor gains in particular are worth preserving, mm -hmm. And presumptively, whatever Democrat gets elected is going to preserve them, and whatever Republican gets elected is unlikely to. Yes. Isn't, isn't that an argument for voting blue no matter who forever? And if that's the case, what do you see as the path to any kind of break from the corporate duopoly? No, because as I laid out, I mean, listen, I did vote for Biden last time around. So in some ways, I guess I do, especially in the era of Trump, do buy into that. But I also would say... Biden's NLRB hasn't just been like, oh, standard issue Democratic NLRB. The multiple rulings that they have taken have been the most significant changes in the landscape of labor policy that we've had in our lifetimes. So that's very different from Obama, who kind of put up some like token, oh, maybe I'll try to get car check. Oh, there's some resistance. Never mind. They've I'm not going to go so far as to say they've unilaterally instituted card check, but De facto, given the fact that every boss ever basically union bust, they kind of have de facto made card check the law of the land. So it's not just for me like, and it's a standard issue Democratic NLRB, so it's worth it. No, this NLRB with Jennifer Bruzzo as general counsel, not only on that, but on, you know, the other, like I said, enabling the Starbucks um, workers to succeed, enabling the Amazon workers to succeed and many other movements across the country. Again, all credit to the workers, but it's important to have the right policymakers in place on overtime um, on there was just another ruling with regard to like solo work actions. So I don't see it as just like, eh, you know, this is kind of the standard for Democrats versus Republicans. I actually think that they have really transformed that space in a way that could be transformational to so the are labor you saying movement. saying that if it, if it weren't a pro-labor Democrat, then you would not feel the need to vote? I don't, you know, I don't know who, how we can predict or if we can predict what the labor policies of, you know, Pete Buttigieg or whoever's coming down the transom would be. Yeah. But are you saying that if it were a less labor-friendly Democrat and let's say not Trump, but Ron DeSantis, which, it, you know, it might not be Trump, it might not be Biden, that you would feel differently about voting for a Democrat? It's possible. I mean, I would just evaluate like, all right, what's the policy landscape I'm likely to get here? What's the policy landscape I'm likely to get there? And then, you know, weigh what I think is the best path to change. I just, I don't have a lot of use for the theoretical arguments about like, well, maybe if we vote this way and say that and then do this one weird trick, maybe somewhere down the line we get the revolution. I just don't really buy into that. What I can see is the, you know, very clear measurable differences between some genuinely good things that Joe Biden has done and some really terrible things that Donald Trump has done. And for me, it's just kind of that simple. And I guess I don't see it as as an abstraction or theoretical. I see, for example, the way the Democratic Party panders to the Latino vote and endeavors to get the Latino vote because it's a divided vote. I mean, Latinos vote for Republicans versus how disrespectful they are to black voters and presumptively who presumptively are going to vote for the Democratic Party. I see manifest differences in the way the groups are treated depending on how openly and historically they swear allegiance to the Democratic Party. And I see that there are opportunities for leverage there 
by saying a priori or demonstrating that you have a genuine willingness to withhold your vote. But you have to be willing to follow through on that game of chicken or it doesn't work. I know that puts people in so, an uncomfortable I, position. But, don't, so, I, don't, but I would just say ahead. two things about that. One, I still don't see if, if Kyle, I want to ask you this because mm -hmm. you seem to really prioritize ranked choice voting yeah. as part of this path toward some more substantive uh, revolution. I, my frustration with, the argue, with that argument, with the argument that you made that as soon as ranked choice voting happens, I will be a Green Party person, yeah. is that it seems very circular. Why is it circular? I'm not going to support the Green Party until there's already ranked choice voting. I already told you at the beginning, I'm voting for I, Cornell I West in a safe space. In a safe space. Safe state. In a safe state. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But it seems to me that there is a, a willingness to be very dismissive of the Green Party, what its cap capabilities are, how little power it has, without there being any real investment in it as an organization. So first of all, and it I, seems to me that a de minimis investment would be helping them get federal matching funds, which so, I know that you have done. Let me you don't advocate for generally speaking. I've I've probably I'd have to go back and do the math, but I've probably voted for either equal amount or more Green Party candidates than I have for Democrats in my life. So I'm definitely a Green Party supporter. But I would just say to people, uh, it's uh, like it's more of a principled vote. Like, hey, I just I agree with these people more. So I'm going to vote for them. But like, I'm never under any illusions that I think that's gonna do anything to really help. I think in order for the Green Party to succeed or any third party for that matter, the, the ranked choice voting has to come first. We have to get rid of first past that's the post so voting. confusing to me. I'm just, well, that I'm just describing what I think is. I'm not even yeah, necessarily I, saying I, my take I, on I, it. I just think that's the reality of it. Well, I, I don't think that's the reality of it because in 2016, I felt the exact opposite, that my vote was beyond useless, but for that it could help Jill Stein and the Green Party get to federal matching funds. I voted for Howie Hawkins in 2020, not out of principle really, outside the, the fact that the party represents my ideals. Howie Hawkins was an especially inspiring candidate, but practically speaking, the most effective use of my vote was to vote to get the Green Party federal matching funds. It's one of the most tangible, concrete yeah, things see, that you can do. I just don't think, even if they get federal matching funds, I still don't think they have any prayer of winning any election unless and until we have ranked choice voting. That's that's what's so frustrating to people that it feels like a I'm just when you when you characterize it that right way, that's what I'm trying to do is describe what I think is well, happening. I mean, I'm not there's no like more. I'm not giving any moral judgment or I'm just saying this is what I think is to many people. That sounds a lot like what folks said about Bernie in 2016. Oh, you're you're not he's not going to win anyway. Why even vote for him? No, but he ran Bernie? as a Democrat and he got like 45 percent of the vote. So I don't agree okay. if somebody said that about Bernie, but I do agree if somebody says about the Green Party because it's structurally biased against but them. And I'm making like a more pro Green Party argument because what I'm saying is it is biased against them. We need to unrig it so that they have a chance. That's kind of the point I'm making. But Kyle, people were saying that about Bernie from the second that he launched his campaign. It wasn't as though, in retrospect, we can sit here and say how wrong they were because Bernie was largely successful in 20, more successful than people anticipated in 2016. But part of, I'm sure you remember this, part of what was such an uphill battle in 2016 and so deeply frustrating, so much so that it drove me out of the law firm and into a career in journalism, is that people were using those kind of defeatist arguments about Bernie Sanders and what his campaign could ever possibly achieve. And so as someone Wait, so who is- Do you think he could win? I'm curious. Like, do you think Cornell could win or what do you-, what do you... I don't think the goal has to be winning. And this is why I wanted to come back to that, that statement. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to mischaracterize you. I, I think it's fine if we just attribute our differences of opinion to a difference of priority. But to me, and this is, I said this to Chris Hedges in Cornell West when he first announced, the likelihood of you winning is obviously infinitesimally small. 
So we have to think about what we hope to get out of this election. When I look back at the two Bernie elections, I think they weren't failures because he lost. I think that he empowered a lot of people to make a lot more substantive demands of the political process and could have led into a really significant organizing effort. Bernie decided not to keep those efforts alive, but it had a lot of, of potential organizing power. I feel the same way about Cornell West. And my belief that progress is not going to come to the Democratic Party makes a vehicle like Cornell West's Green Party run almost the sole path, no matter how limited it is, toward building real organizing efforts, to raising the specter of certain kind of issues that are not being cut out of the mainstream sphere, specifically because of the way that Marianne's being sidelined. We're not ever going to get to hear from her, it looks like, but they can't ignore Cornell West because he's in the he's in the general election, and at the very least, they're going to be talking about him as a spoiler candidate. Marianne's polling and way higher than Cornell, to, though, so she she's less marginalized, if at least if you go by the numbers. Marianne's at like 10% and Cornell's at what, 3%? This, again, my goals are not winning the election. I don't see success or failure as winning the election. And frankly, if we're judging based on your likelihood to win the election, Marianne and Cornell are in the same place. And I mean that yeah, I don't no agree disrespect with that. to Marianne Williams. Yeah, I just don't agree but, with that. But see I, see, I also think that there can be value in a campaign that doesn't win. And I think the Bernie Sanders... And Marianne's campaign, there's value in it. It's important. And I think that's, winning. you know, that's like my view of the Marianne Williamson campaign yes. as well, because we have examples of the way that primary campaigns can not only push the candidate who ends up getting elected. And I think that it has did have an impact on Joe Biden. But also, you know, Bernie is a bunch of his um, supporters have ended up involved in like the the Starbucks labor union movement. So it's not like it was. Nothing. I, I agree. But I think That's, I'm making for the same me, argument. Yeah. So but for me, just to explain, I see the landscape between, you know, fighting in a Democratic primary and trying to take over the Democratic Party as much more likely to see, succeed. And I think we have the evidence of that from Bernie Sanders two runs versus a third party effort. And we could say, OK, we'll do the, all of the above. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is, I mean, the left is small in America. If people's energies are going in one direction. They're not going in a different direction. So in an alternative universe where Cornell West runs as a Democrat in the Democratic primary, there could have been more of a cohesive effort to try to force debates, which is something that, you know, a priority that normie like Democratic random liberal voters agree with as well. Well, I guess I, I disagree with that. I think it's actually the best of both worlds that you have someone who's representing progressive interests in the general election and someone who's representing progressive interests in the primary, especially since it's not clear that Marianne would be willing to do a dirty break. I think the ideal, ideal solution would be someone who could do a dirty break articulating as a rationale that they were treated so poorly by the Democratic Party, that they were shut out of the debate process, that there was a rigging of the order of the primary states, and therefore that justifies, kind of morally and politically, running in the general election. To me, personally, that's an ideal situation. But absent that, having someone who can highlight the rigged nature of the Democratic primary process, the way that Marianne's existence in the race is doing, is a boon, is, an, is ideal, and also, the left's voice not being silenced once the primary is over because Cornell West is still in it is also a huge gain for us. And moreover, again, I think having a third party grow stronger because they are better funded 
is as close as a concrete advancement that can come from one's vote as exists in the world. I think helping to enable a really important labor movement that could win a lot of games for working class people is also a very important use of one's vote. And, and I people think who are core... Democrats and, and have that as their goal. But why do you just so, do that? Well, but wait, why, why as Democrats? Because Isn't that a goal of yours too? No. This is why I keep trying to come back to this. If your priority is re-electing Democrats. No, no, no. My but priority if is not but, re-electing no, 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 Democrats. But you're saying the your, policy, the is policy, it, don't the better you policy. Also have no, but you're, no, a, but but you're on, saying not getting don't Trump elected. You also that's re-electing Democrats. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, yeah, hold on, hold on. That's what Don't you have... How about I explain what I'm talking about? Don't you have as a goal helping to build out an effective labor movement, powerful labor movement? I think there's many ways to do that. I'm not not diminishing... Don't you think the policy landscape matters for that? Sure. Okay. That's, that's, I mean, so isn't that but a tangible- But that's not my priority. Concre- so I, labor I, is not your priority? No. If re-electing Donald, uh, Joe Biden is not my priority. But again, these things are connected. Right. Well, I <laughs> respect and appreciate people who are going to prioritize that. I think that it's strengthening the Green Party is, I think, a better avenue, a more significant avenue to meaningful political change in the United States of America. So there's, there's one more thing I really want to- get your thoughts on because there's I always try to be careful when I talk about the spoiler effect because mm-hmm. I know people get very feel a lot of ways about that because they take it as like oh you're blaming the voters for reelecting Trump when no but I am trying to acknowledge the reality of the fact that in election an election that's going to be a binary choice between Biden and Trump and in a reality where the Democratic Party is not going to look at the Cornell West candidacy and go, let me give the left everything they want and try to win their voters, that it is very likely Cornell West makes it more possible for Donald Trump to win. Okay, so mm-hmm. can we all acknowledge that's reality? Sure. So the thing that's always been confusing to me about the argument that I hear from third party advocates is on the one hand, they hate the idea that there's a spoiler effect. But also the whole theory of political change seems to be like if we threaten to spoil the election, then we'll have power and leverage. So is like, am I missing something? I Just don't know explain who your the spoiler effect. I think there are people who are afraid of looking bad. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. Oh, it's yeah. going to make third parties look bad and we'll be demonized. Me personally, I don't give a shit. So you're fine to say, I, yes, I we want to spoil yes, the I'm election. Spoil. I think Cornell West is going to be in it. And if you don't want Cornell to spoil, you need to start courting voters hard. And See, so it's that's up, honest. It's, See, yeah. I think that's, that's consistent. Party. But there, I, just, you're being honest, and I respect that. But there are a lot of people who will at the same time simultaneously argue there is no spoiler effect. But also I want a third party candidate well, thrown no. so they could spoil it unless I, they get, get what so they the, want. It's different. I think there are, are, are moments where the person who's been accused of spoiling, there are so many variables at play. Yeah, that it's that not a spoil. I agree. Spoilers is being used to absolve the candidate Correct. for running a bad campaign. I agree Agreed. with that. That's what we're talking about with Ralph Nader and, and Jill Gore, Stein. And that's what we're talking about with Hillary Clinton and not campaigning in the Midwest and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So there's this and there's also this reality that I do think that there is a way that libertarian votes are never counted toward what would happen if third parties didn't exist. Right. There's always three times as more libertarian voters than Green t- Party voters. And there's something very disingenuous about the idea that there's an obligation for left-leaning non-Democrats to fall in line when there's no obligation for right-leaning non-Republicans to fall in line. So I, I think those are the arguments that are happening around. And well, it's 9% not really of spoiler. Democrats also vote for Republicans any given election. That's what happened right. with Trump. With, in, yes. in, in Florida with um, Bush Gore, so yes. many Democrats. So you would say Bush. if it ends up being 
that the Cornell West vote is determinative, which is not a crazy scenario at all. I mean, the polls say that that could very well come to pass. You would say that he should actively go out and argue. Damn right. I think that he I should do the that reason. before the election, to be honest. If, if I were running the Cornell, Cornell West campaign, which I very much am not, I think that the goal is to change the rhetorical framing as much as possible around the idea of a spoiler. So you were saying um, that we tried this in, in 2016 with yeah. Bill Stein. I think we very much didn't, and it would have been good if we had done exactly this, which is to shift the burden of who's responsible for voters not voting onto the candidate who has failed to win those kinds of votes, to, to win those votes. We see a very different temperament in the media when we're talking about different groups of voters. Sometimes there's some voter shading that happens around, let's say, black voters. But generally speaking, like, let's look at what they did to Bernie. They say, oh, well, Bernie was a failure because he didn't get black votes. Not, oh, black people were wrong to not come out and vote Bernie, mm-hmm. vote, for, vote for Bernie, right? And the media has power in framing who we think the onus is on mm-hmm. when an election doesn't go the way that we would want it to go or yeah. they would want it to go. Yes. So to me, Cornell West really has to get out of out in front of it with a very clear message, one, that none of this would be an issue if for, but for ranked choice voting. You can make the argument that Trump would have never even won the Republican primary in 2016 if we if they had ranked choice voting, that ranked choice voting is in a lot of ways a panacea and that that is completely in control of the Democratic Party and point to specific instances of the Democratic Party thwarting ballot initiatives and Democratic efforts to implement ranked choice voting. Um, and two, I'm not going so as far as to say that he should agree to drop out if certain concessions were being made. But he should make the case as to why so many people are interested in his campaign versus the Biden campaign and say, if Biden were to match me on these core areas, I suspect that I would organically lose a lot of support because people don't, in fact, want Trump to win. And if they could both prevent Trump from winning and get these things that they think they can get out of my campaign because Biden is also offering them, it would be the best of both worlds. And that's on Biden to fulfill those promises and to fill those needs from the public. So what you're describing, I agree with what you're saying. And also is my it was my biggest beef with Bernie when he dropped out mm-hmm. is that it was so cuckish. It was mm-hmm. just like, yes, Joe, do you support a $15 minimum wage? Yeah, I do, Bernie. Mm-hmm. And he actually had some leverage where he could have said very specifically, I need this, 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 and this. But and just... any good things we got from Biden were because of him. It, I don't, it's like Bernie didn't get him up front as part of a, a deal. Yep. I just, I would love for that to work out the way that you imagine that it would work out. You got to advise Cornell. Just, That's the bottom I line. I think it would be. <laughs> That's the bottom line. I just think it's far more realistic that it goes the way that it goes in the past, which is that the media, as you pointed out, will controls the, left. the narrative true, yeah. of who's to blame and who's not. It will be the fault of Cornell West and his damn voters. And Democrats will, rather than saying, oh, let's do Medicare for all. Let's actually, actually, they were right about the revolution. Let's do it. Instead, they will further smear, dismiss, and marginalize this pesky group of voters that, in their view, triggered the re-election of Donald Trump. That's it, what I think, based on recent past yeah. history, yeah, that's and it'll what be I dishonest, but that's likely. what they'll do. That's what I think is and, much more likely. It's like dishonest, but they'll do it. That's you know what, what they I mean? did to Bernie. That's what they'll do to anybody who's a genuine threat to the establishment. And if they want to keep smearing and demeaning voters who turn around and not and stop voting for the Democratic Party. I got to be honest, I think that's a net win for alternative third parties as well. But let me just say one last thing about why the why the labor movement is so central to me 
It's because I think it is not only one of the most important forces for good for working class people in American history, but it's because also when there was a large and powerful labor movement, they exerted a lot of pressure on the Democratic mm -hmm. Party. And so that's the other reason why I'm so invested in what happens there and helping to encourage the, you know, again, what I see as the best thing that is happening in American politics by far. That's why I'm so invested in that and why I put so much stock in that, because it's not just about those immediate gains. It's also a power play to help secure and further the gains for working class people. Let me ask you this. We talk a lot about Joe Biden, corporate influence, how he took more money than anybody else in the Democratic primary in 2020, how his connection to the banking industry informs his economic policy, how the dollars that he's taken from the pharmaceutical industry might inform the progress, but moderate progress on prescription drug reform. Mm -hmm. And we all were very disappointed to see him deploy uh, the Railroad uh, Act to stop yeah. the strike. Yes. Which was a choice. Do you sincerely believe that Joe Biden will allow the labor movement to be as strong, strong enough to undermine his obligations as a recipient of all of these donations? I mean, I think for the for we saw 40, 40 of his donor. We saw forty. What was the forty business interest write him that yeah. letter to tell him to crush a labor strike? And it seems that he listened. I can only judge by what the record has been. Now, the worst part of his labor record is intervening in the railway stoppage. No doubt about it. But I can also say unequivocally that the best part of his record has been what his NLRB has done. So all I can do, I can't the get overtime rule too. I can't get inside his mind. I can't predict the future, despite the name. Ha ha, bad name <laughs> joke. Um, I can't do any of that. All I can do is look at the record and say that this has been incredibly important, and I would dare I say potentially transformational. Yeah. Well, look, I got to the place that I am, not I think out of uh, excessive cynicism. The same as I feel about how I've gotten to the place where I am with members of the squad who I found to be politically disappointing in various ways. Total agreement there. <laughs> it has been two and a half years of waiting to see what they're going to do, listening to the rationale behind why they've chosen not to act at this time or that time, seeing them offer the exact same explanations for why they do choose to act in different circumstances that are about issues that are not as meaningful as I would say Medicare for all is, but they'll use that same rationale to vote to impeach Donald Trump, for instance. I've seen the parliamentarian dance over the $15 minimum wage. I saw the bifurcation of Build Back Better. I saw, <clears throat> sorry, I saw the bait and switch on student debt cancellation. And so I acknowledge having some significant skepticism about the Biden administration and what they're willing and able to do. I, I similarly have skepticism within the labor context, and I think I would attribute, and I know that you give full credit to the workers first and foremost, but I also have listened to Chris Smalls talk about how much of his success came from ignoring existing unions and the business unionism that has limited the 
efforts, the the goals that unions have even set but for themselves. Seen what's happened with the Teamsters using. and UPS? I mean, yeah. the members just re- elected new leadership, more militant leadership. Yeah, yeah. at UAW. That, and but that, but that's so. that's the point that I'm making. That there are a lot of other factors at play, in, including these leadership overhauls, that have that I would that I would point to potentially first and foremost as I go to explain the wave of union activity. Labor yeah, activity. and and I mean the counter argument to that is that's all true, but it all would have been snuffed out in the crib if not for a sympathetic NLRB. That's that's not only not only that, but even with those really exciting and very courageous gains that were made, last year union density still declined. And the reason is because you have a policy landscape that is massively tilted against workers. And this recent decision is the biggest thing that's happened to help to rebalance those scales. And 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 so it's, so that's why, like, to me, that's really clear and really important and so important to protect that it's, you know, not even a question mark for me, but it's also part of why I find it frustrating when, um, People who claim to care about a lot about the labor movement and, you know, cover a lot of this and are engaged with it or even say, like, this is where to put your energy over electoral politics, et cetera. Just like pretend like that didn't even happen when it truly could be such a watershed moment. Look, I think that Joe Biden should get out and campaign on that. He should get a bunch of disaffected voters, people perhaps who are in unions or want to be in unions who have not voted in the past to come out and vote for him on that basis. And I think I hope that 15% of voters, perhaps people who don't typically vote, perhaps disaffected Democrats, perhaps perhaps disaffected Bernie voters, choose in every single state across the United States of America where they have the opportunity to do so, to vote green. Brianna, I know it got spicy at times, but I enjoyed the exchange. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate thank you. you. For, the, so for real, for yeah, real. Great. We love you. And if it got heated, it's because that's just how we no, are. I, I appreciate you. it. And I, I really do appreciate, I mean, I do think that part of the what could be really beneficial, and I'm not saying that anyone has to agree with my plan or way of doing things, but I do think there's a lot of power in independent media. You two are perhaps the most important and mm. big voices mm. in left independent media right now. <laughs> I mean, that's just true. I don't know about and that. And there's like a handful you. of other <laughs> options out there who I won't name because I'm also going to say I substantively disagree with their politics much of the time, and I'm not trying to start beef, but... I really do think that part of what was so powerful for Bernie was there, that there was some consensus and coordination, unintentional, not like by, by plan or by design, across independent media and a clarity about what could be possible if we were all kind of in sync, offering counter-programming to the mainstream media. And I'm very appreciative to you both for that. I haven't forgotten the force of the vote wars and, <laughs> you know, being on the same side of all of that. It's weird that we were in favor of it, but now apparently I'm told I was against it. That, that's how what I've heard is that short, I was, I'm against the thing I'm actually short, for. Short memories. There are a lot of people who I think sprung up after Force of Vote who were politicized by Force of Vote but weren't uh, apparently aware of how it actually struggles. went down. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's all to say that I, I sincerely do appreciate both of you. And I do appreciate your programming, for example, about the successes that the, the good things that are happening. And when I'm in situations like on Rising, when I'm talking to conservatives, that information is useful. 
That's good. I'm for glad push, to hear that. I'm really back. glad to hear that. Yeah. But in my own safe space, <laughs> it's, that's yeah. not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, and, and, and to be fair, the only reason why I bring up those things as much as I do is because, and perhaps it's because I'm probably autistic and on the spectrum, but like, I feel like nobody else brings them up. So I'm like, what about this thing? What about this thing? And I know it can get annoying, but I want to thank you for bearing with us the entire time. No, it's my pleasure. Really. <laughs> yeah, you were awesome. Appreciate it. All right. Right back at you. 